This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, December 12th, along with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk. Entitled, Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing, the pre-talk publicity describes it in this way. In the contemporary spiritual scene, awareness can be as much a buzzword as mindfulness. Awareness derives from the concept of being watchful or vigilant. Thus, to be aware, to be wary of, something, implies guarding against the arrival of a potential danger. From this root, awareness has developed into the common idea of a mental status where one observes the inner and or outer realms without any necessary object of awareness implied. But there is an unexamined assumption underlying this idea which is that it is feasible to maintain a kind of vigilance as a more or less unitary ongoing state. In this talk we examine this assumption. Can a state of vigilance or awareness ever be more than a string of unique moments that we retrospectively link together in the mind? When we watch a sunset are we not awarenessing the rising and passing of discrete perceptions, emotional responses, bodily sensations and thoughts? Is it possible to relax the flow of awareness in such that serial fixation upon each unique pimple on the butt of the absolute gives way to something more like an appreciation of the contours of the overarching butt that graces the absolute? After the talk, Rob and I will add some concluding observations from the studio, so please now enjoy Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing, with Rob Schmidt and myself, Stuart Goodnick, at Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol on Thursday, December 12th, 2019. The, um, the wonderful, two of the three wonderful founders of this veritable um, uh, emporium of the sacred um, are here to give a talk tonight. Um, the most um, emporious is uh, Stuart Goodnick. The least emporious is Rob Schmidt. <laughs> and um, that, that's a, uh, um, what, what do you call it, a neo- neologism that I've just created uh, to um, blend together imperious and emporium. So, so <laughs> I'm going to demand that you all buy... <laughs> Snow globes. A snow globe. A snow globe. Jim brought these into the store, especially for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they're all different. Well, you want to, you, well, you, 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 you know, get well, the... Well, you, but they're all different. Oh, I see that you're right. Some, some of them... Some uh, of them are much more oh. refined, and some of them are much more... Um, sparkly. Sparkly, well, exactly. Some, some of the wisdom is refined. These, these are the... 
gold flakes of wisdom. <laughs> I, this one's especially good. This one I think we should uh, increase the price on. <laughs> but for all of you, you can have a discount. Now they're normally they're normally uh, fifteen dollars, but for tonight only, you can buy them for ten dollars. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good discount. Ooh. And then we have a Ganesha gold. This one's uh, seven fifty, so we'll let this. We we will allow him to remove your obstacles for a mere five dollars. <laughs> Well, are there more than one of him? No. Yeah. No, 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 there, there are. are. There are. There's, oh. there's more back here. Someplace. You're but they're going fast. Buy it now. Oh, there they are. There's two, at least two more. They are apparently going fast I'm because I'm sure we had more than three to start. Ooh, that's a pretty one. And he is the obstacle remover, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Buddha, uh, Buddha removes suffering. Ganesh removes uh, obstacles. <laughs> Which one gives you more time? Mm -hmm. Which one gives you more time? I suppose. Uh, Chan or Zen? Chan? Or Zen, depending on Chinese, it's uh, Chan. Japanese, it's Zen. It's two critters. Crisis? Mm, two critters. I don't know. What, what is the glyph for. Do you know what the glyph for uh, Chan is? No, that's Chan. The one on the right is. Uh, the Kind of looks like a redhead or something. <laughs> well, you can see her hair. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. What? I see the cape. <laughs> I can't tell that her hair is red. It's a. Uh, you're just wearing a Rorschach test. That's what that. That's okay. What this is. <laughs> no. All right. Well, as far as I'm concerned, for me, for me, it looks like the, what you're referring to as a redhead is the top, the head of a bird at the very top there. From my perspective. Here? Yeah, mm -hmm. right there. Oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, mm -hmm. we're here to talk about pimples in the butt of the absolute. We are, so we better get going on this serious business. Um, I was reading a book by um, a uh, wonderful Zen teacher named Brad Warner, and he's written a number of books. I think this was his—it's his most recent book. It was his fifth book, I believe. Well, I could be wrong about the number. Might be, might be six. Anyway, uh, it's his latest, and it's called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. And um, the thing I like about Brad Warner is that he's very um, down-to-earth. He's very um, knowledgeable. And he's not afraid to sound um, like a, an actual human being as opposed to an ascended master or something like that. So, or some, or an aiming for ascended master. So, um, so he had this. Uh, I was reading this book, and I came across this um, sentence: "We are pimples on the butt of the absolute." And I was so taken by that, uh, for for a number of reasons that we'll discuss, that um, I decided to use that for the talk. And I was in con in email contact with him because we were setting up and have now set up a. Uh, a conversation with him about this book um, for I think it's scheduled for Monday, December 30th. We're going to do that conversation, mm -hmm. and then we'll probably and it'll play on whatever it is, January 4th or 5th. Um, and um, and in in conversation with him, I, I or in in one of the emails I sent to him, I. I, I mentioned this line that I said I liked so much, and so 
when he wrote back to agree to do the event, to do the conversation, his uh, um, what's the word? What's the what's the phrase? It's, it's the opposite of salutation. So, all best wishes or sincerely. What's the? There's a word for that. Um, that way of sort of concluding uh, a letter before you um, s sign your name. Mm -hmm. Anyway, his uh, conclusion was pimply yours, ah. Brad. And so um, I, I was amused by that. And yet another indication of his um, his sense of humor. But um, not B-U-T-T, -T, but B-U-T, but I wanted to um, talk about for a moment about the more or less serious application of, of, of this idea. Pimples on the butt of the universe, our, our young friend um, Anthony had to leave, our employee, um, a little while ago when he heard me recite this name to some, uh, the name of the talk coming up to some customers who'd come in the store. He um, shortly after, thereafter revealed that he thought that that was a uh, pejorative or denigrative um, observation about people and about things. But uh, I think that uh, Mr. Warner intended it as simply um, an observation of the nature of phenomena as they um, emerge, manifest, and go away, much like a pimple on your butt. They emerge, they manifest, and then they go away. One way or another, they go away, even though sometimes when we look in the mirror, I suppose we don't necessarily think of that as being part of the process, that they go away. And that's... Um, that's true for us too. Stuart and I have been witnesses to some uh, uh, friends and family members passing over the last few months, and um, and that's part of the that's part of this this uh, pimply nature that we that we share. We um, we have this quality of arising, manifesting, and then going away. And a lot of the times, a lot of the time, it seems to me, we we get involved in thinking that we're a little more important than that. That we're um, not a pimple, but I don't know what would it, what would what would a uh, something. Um, a tattoo on the butt of the universe. I don't know <laughs> something that something that people want would want to have would want to see themselves as. So, so that's one part of the serious nature of this uh, metaphor. And um, there's an awful lot of self-importance in the world, and it's nice sometimes to. Uh, puncture um, the um, 
was going to say temple, but no, to, to puncture the, the gaseous buildup that occurs um, as a result you're of... You're mixing your metaphors. I know that I'm so, mixing so my metaphors. So that's why I hesitated for a moment. What's that? The ego is the pus. Um, that would be sort of icky metaphor, but sure, I'll go with that. But well, well, I, I had a, uh, uh, a take on this that was coming up as you were talking, which is, it made me think about uh, pearls in the sense that um, ah. pimples are uh, 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 a rise out of irritation. And in a sense, the um, our individuation in, uh, in, in our sense of it being separate and individual is a kind of an ongoing irritation that we keep trying to work out in our lives and trying to resolve in some way. You know, it's like, uh, it's almost like being in, having a sense of independence and having a sense of an independent uh, uh, self and feeling, feeling in separation, having uh, aims and agency that's sort of in contrast to the rest of the world is a state of kind of ongoing irritation or as the Buddhists would say a kind of a form of suffering because we're always kind of grasping for something to fill this uh, interior emptiness that we uh, feel and it, and it's like this weird kind of unresolved pressure that uh, uh, ultimately for all of us in one form or another uh, uh, the pressure gets released you know at least for the death of the body and um, and, and whatever processes ensue before and after that may cause the cycle to repeat but we find ourselves always trying to resolve and uh, pimples are kind of like that you know it's like this build up of pressure and, and this uh, kind of disruption on uh, what otherwise might be this uh, smooth contour of uh, uh, of the the universe, and so so for that kind of goes in uh, along with this idea of self-importance. You know that that it's possible for us to take steps, and, and Jim may not agree with this. It, it's possible for steps to be uh, granted to us, as <laughs> Jim might say. But uh, there is a possibility, uh, uh, whatever the agency that possibility may find itself in. Uh, of a relief of that kind of pressure and that relief of that kind of irritation so when that irritation is relieved and the pressure relaxes then uh, we find that the separation that we find between ourselves and the world you know the, this this kind of very distinct uh, difference in perspective becomes a lot more porous and what happens out there and what happens in here is a lot more fluid and a lot more um, uh, natural <coughs> such that ultimately what arises internally and what arises externally is sort of uh, in a way <coughs> we can behold it as though it's happening um, uh, by its own accord and that we don't have to even in our perspective of awareness even uh, uh, cling to some idea of agency or cling to some idea of being the self that's making that happen and we can just participate 
and enjoy and be relaxed in the participation on the arising of all the interesting things that uh, unfold in our lives. Those interesting pimples. Yeah. On our own eyes. <coughs> but I, I think it gets to that question or that distinction in the, in the narrative that uh, Rob had. He, he draws this distinction between awareness and awarenessing. Maybe you want to talk about that. Uh. Yeah, I was just going to get to that. It's because um, because one of the things that I think um, can help illustrate part of the reason that um, this um, title appealed to me is the is this distinction between what I was calling awareness and awarenessing. And awareness would be I feel something uh, uh, suddenly on my posterior. And I get I get a mirror and look at it, and I'm like, oh my God, I've got a big pimple on my butt, you know. And um, you know, maybe it's uncomfortable, or maybe it's not, or maybe I imagine that those lucky people who get to see my posterior uh, um, without um, anything in between their eyes and and um, that part of my anatomy, um, you know, I might feel. Uh, what's the word? Uh, embarrassed, or or reluctant to have this apparent um, unbeautiful aspect of my nature um, displayed for people. Um, and and the point I, I would make about that is is um, that we we think of that as an event, you know. Um, we see that there's this thing that we don't like and um, as we become aware of it it's a thing and then we respond and react to it and that's a lot of how people it seems to me um, approach the practices um, that someone like Jim um, um, used to engage in over many years, even though he's now abjured the use of them. Um, but the spiritual practices that um, um, that many people find efficacious in seeing things differently. So what's the nature of the thing that they're seeing differently? Well, maybe one way to language it is to say that um, instead of looking for awareness, seeking to cultivate awareness, what, um, what we might do instead is, is seek to cultivate awarenessing. And by that I mean that we, rem we have the we create a way to note that whatever event we see is related to things in a you could call it a time stream, you could call it a, a wider um, context, um, but there is no event in our consciousness that is not contextualized in some way. And when we contextualize things, it becomes more like a verb than a noun. And that distinction can help us um, acknowledge 
that these things that we think of as unsightly temples are not our toots from uh, passing fire trucks or whatever truck that was. Yeah. Um, as as things that we um, can appreciate are part of something bigger. <laughs> and so the um, awareness seeing then becomes a different, or to practice awareness seeing becomes something different than practicing awareness. Practicing awareness means, oh, in one moment I've got it right, but then the next moment when I have that thought, it's like I'm being taken away from awareness because I'm thinking about awareness in a way that distances me from the act of awarenessing that awareness. So, um, so it's a it's a subtle distinction, and it can emerge in many different ways. But that's the um, you know those are the two basic ideas behind this this brief talk tonight is to remind ourselves as we enter 2020 and all, all the things that the universe has in store for itself and us along the way that um, that it is a process that it's not um, a destination and um, and to harvest or to be or to be conscious of the possibility that we can harvest not awareness but awareness sing as we um, sit here in this room as we leave and go out to enjoy whatever the holidays have to offer and whatever 2020 brings well <clears throat> I was with you till the use of the word harvest um, okay, fair enough. Um, but um, <laughs> that makes it a now and again. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the reason. Well, not necessarily, though. But yeah, go I mean, ahead. Not, not necessarily, but uh, it, it 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 just serves to distinguish that awareness when we when we talk about awareness as a thing, um, we've mm -hmm. objectified it, right. and as a thing, then it's something that uh, you can have. Um, so I can have awareness. And if I have awareness, there's already an, uh, I've, I've reified a person who's having awareness. And if I have awareness of something, I've reified an object that now I'm aware of. And so in the relationship of, and the, the, of the abstraction of awareness <coughs> to a, as a thing uh, that, uh, you know, has some sort of heft, uh, I bring all this extra baggage, which I bring a, a self uh, that is having the awareness, and I bring the other that is the object of the awareness, and I've const and co uh, constructed a relationship that I'm imposing unconsciously by just by my relationship to this uh, notion of awareness as a thing. So, awarenessing as a verb is a different has a different kind of sense uh, it's I mean it, you can argue because we can always argue with words that you know if, if 
is someone awarenessing uh, or not, you know, or is awarenessing just happening? It has a quality of of um, of something that's ongoing that um, experientially we can tune into more or less, so we can be more present to awarenessing and things are sharper and we have just there's just more space of attention that's available or we can be very distracted by all sorts of other things and then awarenessing kind of uh, uh, gets uh, blurry. Well let me let me jump in here for a second so I, I like this distinction uh, that you've just drawn because um, um, if we if we see awareness as related to events and awarenessing as being about this more spacious context. One of the things my uh, teacher used to say to me is that uh, um, a, a spiritual talk um, by by a you know a, a decent spiritual um, a teacher or master whatever or word you want to use um, can often have the quality of um, uh, being full of apparent digressions. So I've been to a lot of spiritual talks by a lot of different teachers and a lot of different traditions. And one of the things that can happen, and it, it depends on the teacher, it depends on their training, it depends on their strengths and weaknesses and proclivities, etc. Um, one of the things that can happen is is a teacher will start talking about something and suddenly, apparently, her or his attention will be drawn to something apparently unrelated. And there will be this long digression. And in the long digression, there will be sub-digressions. And the sub-digressions will have their sub-sub-digressions. And, and, and for many people in the audience who are not used to holding a great big context for the... Um, for a talk like this, um, the fact that event that that at some point the speaker will bring everything back together, create a whole by going back to the starting point of the original digression, perhaps having done so with some of the sub digressions, etc., etc. Along the way, you get this awareness that or awarenessing that, um, that there's been a movement that is not incoherent. In fact, it's extraordinarily coherent. And that capacity to do that is dependent on this feature that Stuart's pointing to, this, this ability to hold the context and trust that that capacity um, can help everyone get to a place they wouldn't have already gotten to. Because what it's doing is that process and that context. What they're doing is to remind people that things are connected. It's not just individual pimples on the butt of the absolute. It's a whole contour within which those 
events emerge. And, and the capacity to do that is actually quite rare. It does not well, it's a frequency. It, it, it does not frequently it, come come it's, through. It's rare, but it can be cultivated. Right, and so that, and sure. that's important because um, uh, it is possible, just like uh, exercise in a muscle, and you get greater strength. There's a uh, an equivalent muscle of attention that, with consistent practice, can be just developed and strengthened to hold space more openly without having to collapse onto a thought or to jump from thought to thought or if you're listening to uh, someone speaking to listen to each thought and then to keep trying to relativize each thought with a bunch of other thoughts as are going on and uh, you know creating this kind of turbulence of mind as someone speaking you know, the alternative is that if you can hold the space and be present in the space and be present in a broader context experientially that then these lines of words or ideas are sort of laid down very much like music is laid down and by listening uh, one can begin to appreciate a wholeness that might not otherwise reveal itself but it requires that we cultivate an openness and hold a space and be present to without having our attention sort of collapse into the typical associative mind that um, which focuses uh, on events yeah, or which focuses on events. Uh, awareness events yeah and and we're trained typically or we're raised in this society typically and our certainly our media today uh, uh, reinforces this we're trained to spend most of our interior time in a kind of a identified place where we are uh, there's an inner dialogue, there's an inner voice, there's an inner contemplation, there's an inner kind of uh, 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 rumination that's uh, uh, going on pretty constantly in relationship to uh, uh, the small and the large in our lives and it's not like that's wrong. It, it's just that when that is all the primary thing that's there, then there are opportunities that are not as available as there are when we um, take, you know, more consistently take steps to cultivate this spaciousness that we're talking about. And the, and the, and the interesting thing about to me about this is, you know, in practice, even when we we begin to practice. Uh, like in our in our work, we have a practice called self-observation, which is just really reminding oneself to try to return to a, a perspective of presence on the interior content of our minds, our feelings, our bodies, sensations, and what's going on outside, and to keep returning to a perspective that's uh, aware of that without getting lost in it. When we first do that, it's kind of uh, almost transactional in the sense that you're kind of reminding yourself, and you're kind of like jostling yourself awake in a way, and just and it and it uh, it feels like me it me it because I'm kind of building this. But over time, uh, my personal experience it blends is into that, yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that basically, and that and that's where this this whole distinction of like awareness versus uh, uh, awareness awarenessing. Uh, really makes sense to me because it really 
it, it's as though when things start to like when self-observation becomes more of a condition of the space around my presence then that uh, it is more like a awareness in than it is that I'm doing anything I'm not doing anything at that point in the sense of an I doing something is kind of falls away because uh, that sense of an I that was doing something is kind of illusory it's a useful illusion for a while because it it permits a shift in interior flow of attention but it's not it's not like an I that you know the I that I think is doing it isn't really uh, the, the eye that's doing it's, it's it's really just more like uh, kind of like uh, I don't know I'm putting rocks in a river or something and changing the flow it's it's like when the flow changes all of a sudden then there's just a presence that uh, feels less personally involved it's still very personal in a way but it's less personally involved in terms of a narrative and just more spacious and able to partake of the happening of the moment whatever that form is and it's in that place where these things like, you know, you'll hear in the tantric tradition of saying yes to life, you know, it's in that place that we can meet whatever is happening and be present to whatever is happening uh, with an equanimity uh, and a, an openness that precedes our, re- our response to the moment. You know, we still have to do stuff because we're embodied and stuff happens and we have to respond, but the response can be a creative open response or it can be a reactive mechanical response and so by holding this openness and cultivating this kind of open field then we can respond in a way that uh, feels more organic and part of a greater whole to get back to what Rob was saying you know it's like it's like we we're, we're part of some, we're part of a whole that we don't have to worry about uh, controlling in the way that our narrative mind tends to worry about controlling things. Yeah. I'd like to clarify in my own mind mm-hmm. my understanding of, of what you've talk, been talking mm-hmm. about. It sounds like the practice of self-observation is akin to the practicing of awareness that you spoke of originally, Rob, and that there, it's as if that practice is to nudge one towards being in the state of awarenessing, Mm -hmm. in which it sounds like there is a dropping away of the (laughs) self-identification and more an assumption of being one with everything a state which does not call for a response from the personality but which invites a response because that's just what's called for it has very little to do with who's doing the responding it's like I I'm in a situation I'm not bringing my personal likes, dislikes, approvals, disapprovals, or identifications with any of it to the to my presence with it. I'm just responding purely to the needs of the situation with no thought of self. I think that's very I think that's um, 
a, a good description of the direction. Yeah, I um, 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 and I'll also say that I, that uh, the one the one cavil that I would articulate uh, with with uh, the way you put it is is that it's okay for personality or ego to have its say, as it were, um, as long as it's contextualized within this larger awarenessing um, function. Well, functioning. The, the larger awareness would be incomplete without that. Yeah. Right, that's right. Yeah. But, but yeah, and then that was exactly what I was going to say. So, um, uh, well, I'm glad we're uh, on have, the same page. I would have said it better. Of course. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> that goes without yeah. saying. <laughs> so that's but, why I, I got to say it. Uh, <laughs> voice. I was reminded of, we were talking about. Um, um, <laughs> Uh, the last couple, uh, the last time period, about a uh, a friend of ours who uh, had been participating with some of our uh, Taiyu uh, uh, weekly meetings. Um, a gentleman named Donald True, who um, uh, died recently, and we knew him from the radio station and from our work here, and really, really just a a steady practitioner of many, many years. And uh, not so long ago. Uh, before he had this kind of relatively fast decline in health, um, we were doing some work at our uh, at the uh, cows, uh, the radio station antenna uh, uh, up at the uh, Stur- yeah at the uh, Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. That's where we, up up on Coleman Valley Road. That's where the antenna is. And after we were done, he, he lives not so far away, and he invited me to uh, come have some tea. Now my mind immediately arose. Oh, I've got all these things to do. I, you know, I don't really have time to do that. And and so it was like the 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 personality, the, the just the kind of mechanical mind arose. And yet something larger than that sort of just kind of uh, uh, came in to to me and just said, no, actually it's important that you do this. And so we went to his house and he showed me his home and he showed you know we had tea and he was telling me about his history in the place and all the work that had been done and this this house had been a project house for the Nyland group uh, land house a uh, uh, Gurdjieff group that had been in you know Sonoma County that he was for many part years of. that he was had been part of so there was just this, this it was just wonderful intentional space and it was just a, a lovely time and then his daughter came in with her boyfriend and I got to meet them and it was and he was hold, you know basically it was his space and he was sharing his face and uh the next time I was in the house, he was on his deathbed, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, and I saw that space, but I had this rich context uh, in that, and then the next time I was in the house, he was dead, <laughs> and I, uh, you know, w- sat with his body, and I was reflecting on that, you know, I just, uh, you know, it, exactly what we were talking about is, you know, that it's such a dramatic example for me of a larger truth kind of coming in. Uh, soundlessly and providing the clarity that the you know the egoic mind that's filled with its busyness and its uh, as we say in the fourth way denying force uh, energy you know that um, uh, you know it, it's going to arise you know we do, we don't my experience is you don't always get so lucky as to find yourself in a place where it doesn't arise uh, it typically arises and part of the work is having the uh, you know the uh, 
presence to allow it to do its thing but not to be owned by it. It, you know, it seems like our minds are so invested with making meaning of everything and one of the easiest things for me to fall on is not my, uh, I'll call it an intuitive sense, but my logical mind. I want to put this and this together and derive A plus B equals C or whatever in some kind of logical mm -hmm. way. And it's, it's like you're talking about the teacher might wander all over the place before the full picture emerges. It sounds like a wonderful teaching method for forcing the listener to abandon all hope of logically right. deriving. So That's you, a very good point. You just have to Okay, so do it to me. <laughs> no. uh, or rather, it's not do it to me, but do, well, but demonstrate to me. Demonstrate to me. That's the thing that the, the, the teachers do. Yeah. You know, I, I put down my defense. It's my logical defense. Exactly right. <laughs> and uh, allow. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I think you, you state that very nicely. You know, um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, even as extreme as that. You know, it's like... Um, uh, I don't know, a few days ago, a mutual friend of uh, Stuart Jim and I sent an article on the internet, you know, uh, around, because uh, he thought it was, had, had a lot of insight, and, you know, it, it was an interesting, interesting um, political piece about the, the current, you know, state of American society. Um, not so much political, but except in its un undertones political. And, um, you know, and, and, and then, and I didn't get a chance to read it immediately. But then he, he then circulated a response from this friend in Croatia that he has, and she had written back that, oh, I didn't realize there were these, you know, people making these uh, important distinctions in American political life and blah blah blah. So I was like, oh well, okay, I'll get around to reading it. So I, so I did. And as I said, you know, uh, a lot of interesting insights and, and stuff I would agree with, not everything, but a lot. But then I, I realized, but there was also something about it where it was, it was like making observations about how American society has developed over the last 50 years. Um, and the implications of that that aren't being addressed. And he, uh, this writer didn't offer any solutions or programs or policies whatsoever to address that stuff. It was just making these observations. So I thought, ah, that's, you know, that reminds me of, you know, um, when I was a grad student. That's what, that's what grad students learn to do at first, is, is, is you learn how to critique. Um, and then, the, but then the second part of being a grad student to get your PhD or whatever degree you're going for is to actually do some original work, some original research or original whatever. And um, and so this piece read to me like a very brilliant grad student early paper. Now, so I went on went online and and realized that I'd re actually read a piece by this guy before. And it turns out he was, he's this young guy in his 30s, like early 30s. He had, you know, he went to, he was from the Midwest, he went to Harvard, and then, um, and then 
in in 2015, when Trump first announced his candidacy, he became um, this very vocal supporter of Trump's policies and was defending it even through the first part of Trump's presidency. And I guess Charlottesville, the whole um, racist thing and Trump's comments after that, finally were enough of a wake-up call to force this guy to sort of abjure. He wrote a piece in the New York Times. I've, you know, I, I returned to that and I realized, oh, that's this same guy. So then I wrote back um, to our mutual friend who first circulated the article. Um, you know, it seems like he, he's a very smart guy, uh, but he seems very young and doesn't have... I, I wouldn't trust his judgment, really, because, number one, he, he, um, he went all in for this buying a pit at best you could sell buying a pig and a pope by supporting Trump materially and rhetorically um, and then discovered oh I can't actually do that that, that was a mistake um, I, you know it's not that I think that, that he's you know tainted for life or something like that this particular writer but but it's like I did the research and found out it wasn't that hard to do um, to figure this out, but then our, the, the, today I had a phone call this afternoon from our friend who first circulated um, this uh, this piece, and and in one part of the conversation he said to me, "I just can't believe you 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 even thought to do that to to, to find all this stuff out about this guy," and um, I mean he was grateful. You know, I mean, he, 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 and he was even kind of appalled that he'd circulated. I mean, he didn't say it quite like that, but he's, he's it sounded like he was kind of uh, realizing that he'd never actually done that. And he said, I would just never have done that. I would just never have looked for that further understanding of where these otherwise brilliant ideas were coming from. And, um, this is a trivial example compared to the one that Stuart was just offering, it seems to me. Um, trivial in the sense that it's mostly in the intellectual realm, but nevertheless, it's about finding the bigger context somehow. And then seeing how things um, fit with each other. Yeah. Seeing how they, seeing how they, how they inter... Um, I, I would say not finding a larger context because that uh, suggests a searcher, but more allowing a larger context sure. to reveal itself. Sure, but but it's like it's like you know um, when you're a kid, there are points. At least for me, you know, I would realize that the way that things in my body articulate, different parts of my body articulate with each other. It's it was that like this awareness. Um, of something that I had taken for granted before, mm. and so, and so, in large measure, one way to think about this distinction between awareness and awarenessing is precisely about opening yourself to a wider context, and that can happen in this me in the mental realm, as, as you know, just discussing. Uh, uh, with this with this particular example that came to my attention today, yeah, but it help uh, in the emotional and the physical realm as well. I mean, I I think about um, 
the instructions that uh, come up for things like um, practices of interior silence. I know you've talked about this with the um, the the Quaker practice. You know the the idea of listening, of uh, cultivating a uh, the ability to listen to silence is a really powerful uh, um, way for me anyway to frame this and to understand uh, kind of the the interior posture to hold because I find that doing that intellectually you know if you hold a space if you're trying to contemplate something you don't want to be thinking so much as you hold a question you want the question get bigger and bigger and just uh, hold and then interesting things can happen but emotionally that comes up as well and I find in places like in my workspace that um, I try to be aware of the circumstances and the totality of the circumstance so that I can see when things line up and when there's opportunities for action um, without trying to you know force something when things aren't lined up or optimum because that that tends to create a, uh, uh, a reaction in an environment, but when you find things line up and you're and you're just sort of being sensitive to that, to me that's a very that's a it's part of this process of listening for uh, wholeness or listening mm-hmm. for totality. And even in my instruction with my music teacher, my shakuhachi teacher, there's a lot of holding the body in readiness. Yeah, you know, it's like the body is uh, uh, holding a kind of a attention or attention to uh, uh, the possibility, and then contributes to uh, the production of sound or the movement of energy. And uh, it's, and martial arts has the same kind of modality. Of kind of you know your 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 body is really physically listening to what's what's going on in the circumstance. And we're really talking about this on all three levels, this this capacity of listening in silence, to silence, to be present to possibility is is how awarenessing uh, uh, unfolds. And interesting things happen in that space. And we can't tell you what's going to happen because it's, uh, it's uh, uh, where creativity uh, emerges. Uh, you were talking about our friend uh, Stuart was talking about our friend Donald True um, and I, I um, you know he's in, the, in and out of the hospital for like a month and a half in his final illness and I spent you know I, I went there frequently and, so, and spent time with him and and a lot of the time he, he was actually um, to a greater or lesser degree uh, confused mentally confused and he and he was in a um, towards the end, the last few weeks, he was in a ward where where they where he could be observed most of the time. wasn't intensive care, but something in that direction. And anyway, um, the last time I saw him in the hospital, we did see him, as Stuart said, in his home uh, a couple of days before he died, but. Um, the last time I was in the hospital, a few days before, before that, um, I went in there, and and, and he was um, obviously tired and uh, dealing with some some discomfort issues and and that sort of thing. But but he was 
uh, I guess more clear than I'd than I'd seen him for a while. So um, finally, um, the time came for me to go, and and uh, you know I told him that I was that, that I was going to leave, and he's he said something like. Uh, well, I'm going to continue my research. He'd been talking about having, you know, s- some of the apparent unclarity had along the way in the pre- previous few weeks had been about him having this battle, his battling something or someone. And he, and he said to me when I said I was going to go that, uh, well, I'll continue my research. Mm-hmm. And I, I turned to him um, and said, oh, well, I'll, I'll do that too. That's what we call life. And he had this he, the, the most enormous smile I'd ever seen on his face. Mm-hmm. I mean, his face practically split in half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such a huge smile. Mm-hmm. And that's how I, that's how I left him, mm-hmm. you know, with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll probably never forget that smile. Um, as a result of that you know, my spontaneous attunement to where he was coming from, my acceptance of it, and agreement with it, so that um, so that we could share um, what he was uh, what he was experiencing to some ex- to some extent, so I could share it with him. Even the even the, the nurse <laughs> looked over at this enormous smile because he hadn't been a particularly happy customer uh, for them uh, for for quite a while. So um, this awarenessing thing is is a um, it's a process that allows for uh, us to attune ourselves to the processes that are happening in and around us and the better we get at it the more we can be in that place where um, where I could turn to him and respond in the way I did I don't take credit for it because I didn't think about it mm-hmm. it just the words just came out of my mouth mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're the you know the thing that we're talking about here mm-hmm. is like the, the teacher um, doing a talk with all these apparent digressions that get um, contextualized in a way such that such that it's like a, a, a really skillful play or movie where um, every every loose end gets tied into a meaningful way to every other um, apparent loose end. Like a game of Clue. Well, you're, you're, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm immediately tuning into that because uh, just a, a week ago, Stuart and I went to see the movie that's out right now called Knives Out. K N I V E S Knives Out, and it's, uh, it's a, it's like, a, it, in fact, I think there's even a line. And the movie does, the people say, you know, the, it's you know, it's sort of like an Agatha Christie thing where there's this incredible Victorianist, Victorianesque Gothic, house, Gothic house, Gothic house with all this all this stuff in the interior, and there's the the squabbling family, and who's who's killed the, you know, the the patriarch, and and stuff like that, and 
there's one good person, one the character who's 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 not the squabbling, you know, self self interested person um, as a foil to the rest. And it's a, it's an amazing it, it, it's an amazing intellectual accomplishment because and emotional accomplishment because at the end all every and they, they and he creates loose ends all over the place apparently as he's going along you know the uh, uh, writer director and at the end you feel like um, you have not been cheated in the least you've been given you've been every clue that you need. But you have to be attuned to um, the whole of what's going on to appreciate it, and you get there. You're taken there. So it's kind of like that. It's like, it's like that feeling of having uh, of having this uh, vast, intricate puzzle. And sometimes we react to mystery writers like you know they're. Um, I think the reason Agatha Christie was beloved was because readers felt as if she didn't manipulate them or cheat them or, or something like that. And um, and 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 in a way, we're talking about treating the universe. Awarenessing is treating the universe that way. The universe isn't trying to cheat us. It isn't trying to fool us. It isn't trying to um, make us. Um, leave us hanging at the end, <laughs> as it were, and um, and and that's what I want to say about awarenessing. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. I am your host Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California, on Thursday, December 12, 2019, entitled Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing. We will conclude with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk. Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California on Thursday, December 12, 2019, entitled Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing. We will conclude with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk. And that's what I want to say about awarenessing. It's not... Um, it, it is a game, in a, in a sense. And uh, there's, a, there's a book on our shelves, uh, bookshelves, called The Master Game. Robert S. Durop? That's right. Kelly, I read that. Almost 50 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, because that's when it first came out. She's <laughs> a good Sonoma County resident. A good Sonoma County, former so Sonoma County resident. Mm -hmm. But I, I reference it because because he adopts the the language of treating 
practice as a game. And what I'm suggesting is is that the um, the way the game is constructed is not to um, defeat us. And yet we can easily have all kinds of different attitudes towards it. Um, so um, if we think of our lives as a string of pimples on the butt of the absolute, sorry I couldn't resist going back there, <laughs> then we have that attitude. Uh, life is 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 uh, is throwing. Uh, um, are you going to count all the pimples on your uh, mala bead, mala? Yeah, you just keep, keep getting more and more of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, but rather, it's about the whole of the mala, really, and what that mala helps us um, do, which is to recognize the continuity of awarenessing that we can tune into and by so doing um, recognize the the um, the beautiful pattern that we've been a part of and the beauties the intricate beauties small and large um, that we get to experience so that's that's the other part of what I want to talk about, what I, what I wanted, the point I wanted to make about awarenessing versus um, awareness. In, in awarenessing, those pimples are part of a greater whole. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's, that's a more, it's, it's not that it's wrong to put attention on individual things, on the contrary. And there's also, there's this, uh, apparent paradox of being able to be aware of the specific right now along with simultaneously an awareness of a greater totality um, within which we're playing this game. It, I'm seeing at the same time I keep asking myself, okay, where's the clearasil? The clearasil? <laughs> Sorry, give me a moment to remember what that is. I'm thinking <laughs> that we can be seduced by practice and use it as the clearest Mm. I see what you're saying. Sure, I think a lot of people imagine that that's what practice is about. I think that I think that's exactly right. Um, and um, you know, it's not that it's entirely um, inaccurate. Maybe. Yeah. Um, in the sense that um, you know, various meditative practices may may relieve some so, some forms of suffering it, to some extent when it can become a distraction from instead of deeper engagement with the pimple. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it, to beat this horse of an analogy. Uh, <clears throat> I, I I think of it more that some practices can be more like uh, uh, makeup that covers over the pimple. Uh -huh. uh, Clarisil actually uh, uh, progresses a uh, a resolution of the irritation. Um, or at least that's the claim. Oh, that, yeah, that's the claim. But 
um, it's more when we cover it over and don't. Um, I agree totally with what you're saying. And in that, in that, in that sense, that's that that's when practice is a problem because practice yeah. can be um, uh, a bit, you know, uh, numbing. And we, and, and we t we kind of touched on this when Rick Lewis was here um, uh, last week. Um, that you know, just to recap what he was saying. I mean, the, there is a when we are aware of and we practice the, the kind of awareness that we're talking about uh, it goes so far but <clears throat> our organisms are also the inheritors of a lot of habit energy from traumas that we've accumulated in our lives that give rise to how we're just kind of wired to react and respond to what arises in our lives and that <coughs> the, that wiring basically gives you know disposes us to certain kinds of reactions to things that happen so as he was describing you know you can you can progressively find your life more and more contracted and awareness is one step awarenessing is a um, uh, absolutely necessary uh, condition but what he was talking about was another step which is to actively or energetically move against the grain in order to uh, open up the uh, um, the contraction such that, such that there's a uh, more possibility or more availability to uh, life and so it's, it's a two-part thing and so Sometimes practice can be more like the um, makeup when you get used to having a good hiding place uh, and avoiding the danger. And the danger zone is usually about uh, actually taking steps into against one's uh, comfort zone. Not radical steps, but steps that are just like when you do yoga. You know, you stretch against. Uh, you're always. You know, the instruction in yoga is you always want to stretch just a little bit more than is comfortable. Mm -hmm. If you do a lot more than is comfortable, you're going to you're going to pull a muscle. But if you do a little bit more than is comfortable, then you signal to the organism to uh, start to uh, stretch and to uh, grow. And similarly with what he was talking about, if you signal to yourself that you're about stretching a little bit, then that process will continue, uh, uh, just like turning the rudder on the Titanic uh, a little bit eventually causes it to go in a big circle. <laughs> And we can, and that's how we can affect or be participate through awareness in, in uh, transformation of the habit patterns that uh, we, you know, are the inheritors of. Did I just hear you talk about the Titanic temple on your butt? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. Maybe the temple's like a big iceberg. <laughs> comments, questions, observations. Stuart, you used the word narrative at one point. And I'm just wondering, um, I, I get the, the awarenessing about temporal continuity, but I'm, I'm wondering about the aspect of putting things in words, mm -hmm. verbal thoughts, how that plays into this. Um. Uh, there, you know, there's a nice distinction that I actually, um, I think, the words I'm using, you know, 
came out of um, um, I think something we picked up in a uh, a landmark uh, uh, forum that uh, uh, was kind of the, the latter day version of the Warner Earhart work and there's a distinction that they make in that material between uh, uh, the facts of a situation and the interpretation and you know it's kind of in, in science you talk about observation versus uh, analysis and so what what happens when we say use a word like narrative what typically happens is there are sort of events in our lives but then there's interpretations we lay over it and this is uh, when Carl was saying that we kind of are meaning making machines we make meaning or we have interpretations and uh, and usually these interpretations are that was good that was bad I want more of this I want less of this and that kind of stuff this was terrible I, I'm offended etc etc so we have all these interpretations and then we have these facts you know, a fact could be someone saying, you know, uh, saying something uh, to you in a loud voice. <laughs> the interpretation, you know, is all about the power dynamics and whether it was appropriate or whether you feel smaller or larger or insulted or whatever. So the understanding the distinction between the narrative and the facts is, uh, yeah, something that they emphasize and in the in the spirit of awarenessing when one can see the narrative and the facts uh, as separate then uh, uh, one has space and in that space there's possibility of response as opposed to reaction what happens with most people is that the narrative and the facts are just conflated so we see so the narrative is taken as the truth and the truth is the narrative is taken as the yeah. facts yeah well as the truth and the fact the facts are you know uh, the interpretation of the facts is taken as the truth, and and the uh, or as fact, yeah, as you say, uh, and in that in that place, that's a very cramped place because then we have to, you know, because it, then if if it's true that you that I was just insulted, then I have to respond in a certain way and I have to feel in a certain way, and um, and you know, the, it just goes on and on and on, and we stay in the narrative, and the narrative typically has. <clears throat> a particular uh, uh, theme to it, depending on our, you know, habits and tendencies and upbringings and karma and all this and that. And it's not a place of uh, flexibility. It's not a place of awareness, and it's just a. It's kind of a place of uh, 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 contraction. So, in that sense, uh, you know, being aware, being able to hold the listening uh, above the narrative and be aware that the narrative is happening and not diving into it is uh, part of what we're talking about that can be cultivated <coughs> more and more with this kind of practice or with the specific kinds of practices that uh, we haven't really described the practices per se but with the specific kind of practices that, like self-observation or other similar practices does that answer the question? sort of yeah. what, what more do you need? <laughs> well can you make the, the distinction of how actually putting putting my thoughts into words? I, I guess that that's when you're doing the analysis or judgment or something, uh, as opposed to just simply seeing it. But even when I just see it, I could still wordlessly think that it was an insult, perhaps. Uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> I don't think I, 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 I now. 
you might feel an energetic movement mm -hmm. emo or an emotional movement and then your mind can put words on that but the point that I think Stuart's making is that when that when that process happens if it's re if it's from a a common reactive um, uh, functioning of the mind then there's there's al already there's a, a narrative in fact usually it, the mind is referring back to a entirely previously existent narrative of which this is yet another instance oh I'm always the one who has to pick up the trash you know or I'm always or, or you know she's always saying X to me you know right, so, so once I put it into words in my mind then I, I'm pretty sure I've messed up I, I'm no longer awareness and if I keep it nonverbal then I've at least got a better probability well, I, I, I will I will say that um, the way you're the way you're framing it is is good bad inherently and the way that we're talking about the thing that we're talking about doing here with um, awarenessing is to be present to the arising of the words in your mind and not believing that that's the entirety right. of okay. what's going on. Not caught up in the words, just or seeing them arise. Or not yeah. caught up in the automatic functioning of the centers. Because the, the other thing that you were describing is that the uh, emotional center and the intellectual center can, you know, exchange energy and exchange information. So I have a thought, I'll feel bad. I feel bad, I have a thought. Uh, it's a kind of a loop. And so sometimes, uh, from what you're describing, I may be feeling bad or my, uh, uh, because of a chain of associations. If something new happens, then my interpretation is going to, my thinking interpretation and my ramification is going to be conditioned by the feeling. And then that's going to uh, uh, promote uh, more feeling. And so this process goes on and on. And so when, when you can bring your attention above that uh, it, it's not just not having the thought but being aware of the feeling and not <coughs> having to react to the feeling so you may feel there may be a feeling of bad you know b bad because someone raised their voice to you but that doesn't mean that uh, it means anything other than there's this arising of energy you don't have to play the interpretation on it at that point even even if the feeling arises and that's that's again the space of uh, awarenessing that we're talking about. So it's possible now that you know that that's starting to get very juicy. So that that takes some practice to be able to hold that kind of space uh, coherently uh, across a full range of different feelings. But it's it's possible, and it comes with practice. And and we make lots of mistakes, and we see what happens. It's not it's not a terrible thing, but it's but that's. I'm just adding a little color there to what you're describing because you actually invited a you know a little more uh, fine structure in the process that we're talking about. Thank you. And I, and I think it's important to realize that <coughs> that we assign uh, pejorative interpretations onto um, 
words that don't necessarily have to have them. There, there was a, you know, we're involved in um, an online Zoom group of uh, fourth way practitioners from a lot of different traditions within the overall fourth way, and um, the other day or uh, earlier, or earlier last week, I guess. Uh, one of the people from he's, uh, he lives in Buenos Aires. Um, he didn't participate, and then there was a the next day there was a uh, a picture that he sent to one of the other members, and then that got circulated. And it's a picture of his face completely swollen. He has some kind of too, huge tooth infection, you know. So he, his face is like twice as wide, um, you know, as uh, as normal. And along with it was his, he made some, some statement, he wrote some statement about, and I mechanically identified with uh, pain and self-pity or suffering and self-pity, something like that. <coughs> and I wrote a response in which I said, there's a danger that people in the fourth way have in using the word mechanical. So in the fourth way, Gurdjieff was very clear that mechanical the operation of mechanical habits in us uh, uh, constitutes an op- constitute obstacles or creates obstacles to acting um, in in a response as responsible human beings, and so that word mechanical has has is all too readily interpreted in a negative way, and and I simply pointed that out and said you know. Um, our our teacher Robert Ennis, his pictures in the corner back there, had a good had a good response to this. He he, he would he would say, uh, "Cut yourself some slack." And so I repeated that to him, and he he was he was grateful. You know, he wrote, he responded uh, today or yesterday, and was 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 quite grateful uh, for that because um, it's an important reminder. You know, people end up using the admonitions. And distinctions uh, promulgated by teachers and spiritual paths and so forth, and then create still more goods, bads, mm-hmm. goods and bads about and judgments. And it's not awarenessing is not judging. Awarenessing is holding judgments. It's holding um, uh, distinctions. It's holding. These very these various things. It's not identifying with any of them. Michael, you wanted to say something. Mm. You or at least you raised your hand. Oh, I've got a lot of stuff going on. You've got me thinking a lot about <coughs> the relationship between words and the body. Mm-hmm. Um, um, just honing in on that on that issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I look a lot at I look a lot at the relationship between hands mm-hmm. and words mm-hmm. because because hands do reach and grasp mm-hmm. and words do reach and grasp yeah. too and touch and touch and and push away sometimes too and push away, yeah it's, it, they do they do theater <laughs> um, 
You just really, really got me honing in on that issue. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to do some writing tonight. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. The reason I added the pushing is because not too long ago I was uh, I was running through a parking lot and there was a median strip <coughs> and I thought and there were plants in it and I thought the level of the soil in the planter area would be the same as the pavement and it turned out that was not the case so I tumbled forward as I step, stepped put one leg into this thing from a very different height with my other leg so I was going to hit my hit my face and my the way the the way I stopped myself from hitting my face on the pavement was to put my hands was p to push my hand mm -hmm. and against the uh, against the pavement. Now that resulted in a damage to my elbow, which I'm still dealing with. But nevertheless, my face is okay, mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that um, uh, sometimes, you know, um, the universe gave me a, gave me a good lesson that I probably shouldn't. It wasn't the wisest thing for me to r be running through that parking lot, mm -hmm. but I did save my face, and that use of my hand was uh, a wonderful uh, um, tool. So you seen seeing words as tools of self-protection. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. People use it. Use it. In fact, we see that all the time in political discourse, in mm -hmm. personal relation discourses. Uh, uh, that's one of the that's one of the things that um, that my self-observation practice has given me a window on that I never had before I started doing that, and and you know I think that's what a lot of um, spiritual practice or practices uh, at best are are doing is helping us see those the way those things are um, are deployed and used. What do you say? Are we done, or are there any other comments? Or yes, we have another comment. I'm thinking that uh, of the difference between the pure words, unaffected by volume, intonation, or anything else, as mm -hmm. if they appeared on a page, uh -huh. and the words accompanied by a tone of voice, uh -huh. and how the way that the simple meanings of the words register in us is part of the story but a perhaps more important part of the story is the way we experience the words in terms of the emotional content of, of the pure sound mm -hmm. because that emotional I got into thinking about this because often an emotion is the result of what we think about the words, but it's not just we think about the words, it's what we feel about the sounds and the method of delivery. Mm -hmm. so That's true. That's even true on the written page or on the written screen, I should say, because people get very, you know, uh, you know there's, all, there's all this stuff about the, the way you have to be careful and how you can use a sh just a short, 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 short phrases in emails or texts. Or all caps. Yeah, yeah. Or, or all kinds of, or yeah. all kinds of things. But I completely agree with you. But one, I'll just add one, <coughs> one thing to that is, you know, Sturz and my teacher was very, very clear. Um, 
about how I and other people might quote jokingly and I'm putting cap, you know quotes around that jokingly use a word or a phrase that in, on the face of it would mean would objectively be critical or um, even in, in attack but if people people attempt to pull back the, the the meaning by the way they're apparently saying it in a quote nice unquote way um, his point was as, as you as I think you're 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 saying it's on both sides where there can be um, where it's important what word you use words have meanings and those get through delivery has meaning and that gets through so both of those things and I think the the meaning that comes with the delivery goes under the uh, neurocortex mm -hmm. uh, fence I think it gets through to us and we may not know what or why it may be because it sounded the way a childhood threat may have sounded mm -hmm. regardless of yeah. what was delivered well, we, we, I mean and what the way we analyze that in the fourth way language is 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 to say that you know, the, the sound and the you know the the tone goes to the emotional center mm -hmm. and the uh, meaning and the words and the you know uh, associations goes to the intellectual center the uh, to go back to hands and things like that the gestures will, will actually go to the instinctive center the body center and so we're receiving all of these communications at the same time and uh, the difference in reactivity of those different centers and the degree to which they may or may not be aligned uh, in terms of coherent experience if they're all triggering off of different experiences you know when people are in your face you know uh, saying something that triggers certain things the tones may trigger certain things the meanings may trigger other things and we're kind of just like slot machines with all the wheels kind of turning in different uh, Direction. A nice metaphor. Every now and then, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, three bars come up, but usually it's lemons. <laughs> right. Usually, it, usually it's lemons, indeed. So, um, and yet sometimes, with a skillful, with a person who who can skillfully demonstrate, as we were talking about earlier, with the the, the teacher who can who can create a whole arc uh, that. Um, it becomes a work of art, mm -hmm. an arc that is an art, um, uh, that is art. Is uh, there's that too? Mm -hmm. and of course, um, the way you win with the slot machine is you bring a magnet up to it. <laughs> it's the um, the magnet of our intention. You have to be a physicist to think of these things. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the roulette wheel we were making. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Well, I think we all understand what he's saying. Anyway, uh, any final comments, questions? Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank this you. It's been fun. Thank you for and remember our uh, final our final uh, talk of 2019. The uh, the 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 golden uh, uh, Buddhas of enlightenment, uh, five dollars off. <laughs> all right. Tonight only. <laughs> all right. Are those are the Ganesh? 
a le less enough, least enough fluid so that you could bring it flying? So you could bring oh, it flying? That's, that's a good uh, yeah. question. I guess. Can, you do, can you do a carry-on? Yeah, a carry-on. Um, I think the limit is 3.4 ounces. I think of the Ganesh is okay. Uh, the Buddha's. Uh, How much, though, do you think they are, the Ganesh? I mean, because I'm just not a good judge of 3.4. This is less than two ounces. Oh, it is. Oh, okay, I'm, good. I'm, I'm almost certain of it. Because it would just, I mean, it'd be so terrible when something like that gets taken at the airport. Two ounces, four tablespoons, right? Uh, yeah, so this is, this, is, uh, less. this is more. Yeah, okay, that's good to know. Thank you. All right, well, here we are back in the studio. <clears throat> We've just concluded the listening to the talk, Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing. And um, it was an interesting uh, talk. It was a relatively small crowd, but um, um, I was certainly happy that we sold three of the Ganesha uh, snow globes. We didn't sell any of the Buddha globes, however. So at least um, uh, that portion of the talk was successful. But... I wanted to return to the question, uh, you touched on it in the talk, about where you actually were inspired to take this title from. So maybe you could um, talk a little bit more about that. Well, it's from this book, as I said in the, during the talk, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, which I read recently because we're, in a few weeks, um, planning to talk to the author Brad Warner, Zen teacher Brad Warner, uh, about this uh, new book. And we had, of course, interviewed him for his previous book, Don't Be a Jerk, uh, which I liked very much. But this book, um, I think, is a better book, a more interesting book, a more compelling book. And that's the... Uh, it was in reading that book that I found his phrase that people are just pimples on the butt of the absolute. And I was just uh, paging through the book again right now looking for that quote. I didn't find it, but I was reminded of a passage in his chapter that he calls, and, and I should preface this by saying that at the end of the book he says that he realized he's, he'd written all these books about Zen, but he'd never done a sort of uh, Buddhist basics book. And so he had the idea that he should do a Buddhist basics book because he'd go to talks and talk about some of the basic concepts and ideas behind Buddhism or or foundational to Buddhism and and Warner would encounter these blank stares when he did he'd uh, mention some of these foundational notions so <clears throat> he decides to uh he decided to uh, do a book like this. I won't go into all, all the complications in terms of the letters to a dead friend part. But he comes up with that phrase, people are pimples on the butt of the absolute, which is, converse, which is congruent, I should say, with um, one of the chapters or a good chunk of the chapter that he does about the Four Noble Truths, which he calls, in contrast to the Four Noble Truths, he calls them the Four Noble Truths. That's N-O-B-U-L-L. -L, the Four Noble Truths. So, obviously, he's um, um, looking to de-obfuscate 
some of the um, ideas about Buddhism that have become prevalent. And I want to just uh, reference one one section uh, in the book. It's on pages 98 and 99. He writes, Achieving spiritual bliss and altered states of awareness are just more ways of giving in to desire. Your desire for bliss or altered states is satiated for a little while. But then it comes back again even stronger and you have to make even greater efforts to achieve more bliss or states even more altered than the ones you've achieved or else simply suffer for the lack of them. This is how the folks who sell those methods of meditation keep you coming back for more, by the way. But bliss will always make you feel like crap after a while. And I've substituted the word crap for another word that he uses that we can't use on the radio here. He goes on, When people come to meditation because they want bliss, they generally want mind-blowing and spectacular experiences. And those really do sometimes happen to people who meditate. But they're actually kind of a problem. This is because they can't last forever. They can't be permanent. The nature of bliss, excuse me, he says, the very nature of bliss is impermanence. He quotes some, uh, uh, another author. As Stumbling on Happiness author Daniel Gilbert pointed out, no matter what state you find yourself in, you acclimate to it after a while, and it starts becoming normal, even a state of spiritual rapture or bliss. Once that happens, you start to need another fix, a really big one. The very same mechanism that drives rich people to want even more riches and famous people to want even more fame works on meditators too. Often people who meditate get caught up in craving more and more and more beautiful meditative experiences. I know, Brad Warner writes, I know because this is exactly what happened to me. I had a few very exciting experiences in my meditation that ended in feelings of deep depression because I couldn't get them back. I had to learn to let those beautiful experiences go before I could be happy with my regular life again. It was tough because some of those experiences, experiences were incredibly wonderful. The experiences I'm talking about were exactly the kinds of things you read about in misguided books describing what they say ought to happen when you meditate deeply and correctly. Bliss, rapture, insight, the whole bit. But none of those blissful experiences ever stayed. If you think you felt bad when the boy slash girl slash none of the above of your dreams dumped you, imagine how it feels when God dumps you. Imagine how it feels when the bliss you've been chasing for years finally appears and fills your whole being with abundance and light and then after a little while just packs its bags and goes back to live with its mother or wherever such things go. It's tough, believe me. So that's um, that's something that I think um, sets up the statement later in the book that people are just pimples 
on the butt of the absolute and it's a, um, a realization that that highs and lows are transient and we we are what we are yeah i, I was looking without without having to modify i was yeah i was looking at um one of the books written by the guest we had a couple of weeks ago, Om C. Parkin. And I just came across a moment ago this quote of basically making the point that, you know, uh, his recommendation for spiritual practice was live an ordinary life, but just try to be in stillness. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a, it, it is a similar theme, which is the, the clinging after special experiences or special insights or you know, or privileged knowledge or uh, highs, exhilaration and things like that that are sometimes described to be consequences of intense spiritual practices miss the point because as I think as uh, Brad says there that these things are uh, part and parcel of an ever-changing phenomenology and if you think that's it, you're going to be sorely disappointed because uh, whatever you experience is going to change, and it's going to go up and it's going to go down, and uh, you don't get to suddenly be enlightened and uh, be freed from all uh, consequences of the action of time. Mm-hmm. Well, one another uh, related thing that arose in the conversation at the uh, bookstore last night was the idea about the annihilation of the ego or the personality. And um, certainly in my my early practice, that was something that I projected onto what I was hoping to be able to experience. And um, I've come to have a different view of it and once again, in this uh, um, inspiring book, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Brad Warner has some interesting things to, to say about that. Basically, he, he of a big a puzzle piece has to be a certain size, shape, and color in order to properly complete the puzzle. If one of the puzzle, if one of the pieces of the puzzle manages to transform itself into a perfectly round beige-colored, featureless lump, then it can no longer do its job of completing the puzzle. So, he continues, rather than eliminating your personality or smoothing it into something, you imagine it to be a Zen personality, or whatever, I'll just interject, whatever whatever spiritual tradition you think, could be Advaita Vedanta, could be uh, anything you choose, It's better to find out more clearly just what sort of puzzle piece you already are. That appears to be what my teachers did and what all the great masters of the past did too. They were all very clear individuals. He references then some famous Zen teachers, Koto Sawaki, Dogen, and Ikkyu, who was a 14th century Zen Buddhist monk who was such a wild character they still make cartoons about him in Japan. That's EQ. The list could go on indefinitely, 
But if you just take a quick look through the history of Zen, you'll find it's full of extremely colorful characters. Terms like dissolving or annihilating the ego are misleading. I think I understand why they were used in the past. In some sense, it does feel like the ego dissolves. But it doesn't dissolve like it got hit by a blast from Mr. Spock's phaser. Rather, it dissolves like an Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water. It's still there, but now it's dissolved where it can do its job better. Well, that's a, that's um, an interesting take. It makes me think of our own teacher, Robert Innes's, um description of the functioning of the the ego, or as we would call it, the android, mm-hmm. as it manifested in what in the fourth way we call the for, the intellectual center, and he kind of likened it to an organ in the body that, um, you know, if your stomach is healthy, if your heart is healthy, if your lungs are healthy, they don't call attention to themselves, you don't really notice them. And likewise, if your mind is healthy, it doesn't call attention to itself. Mm-hmm. But the incessant thinking, fretting, uh, uh, stress, internal dialogue is all a, a rep- you know, it's kind of a form of indigestion in the intellectual center. And so to the uh, when that is in harmony and functioning the way it's supposed to, it's kind of transparent. And I think that's what Brad is saying in that uh, piece about likening uh, annihilation of the ego to uh, it being like Alcacessor. It, it it functions and does what it's supposed to do, but it's not constantly calling attention to itself in this way that um, dominates the one's attention. Well, Robert also used to, our teacher also used to talk about um, not annihilating or dissolving the ego, but um, rather digesting it, absorbing it into the greater whole um, that doesn't have to think in order to initiate action or speech. Yeah. And and the other thing I think that's I want to kind of go back to that came up in the talk, um, I think Carl was asking us in the talk about the, or he was characterizing the um, functioning of a, <clears throat> let's say, an unhindered mind in terms of being able to make choices or uh, act in ways in response to situations without the presence of the uh, ego getting in the way. And in the subsequent discussion, uh, you know, we we described how, at least in our experiences, it's not so much that the ego goes away as much as our, uh, our tendency to get stuck or to get fixated on it or identified with it is what loosens up. So it's not like the ego goes away necessarily, uh, but one can have a different relation to it such that other possibilities are available when um, situations arise in our lives and the ego may be triggered, but we don't have to be triggered as a totality. And I think that's important to note because, um, you know, when you use a term like annihilation, it gives you the idea that the ego isn't there anymore. And, in fact, uh, when I think about um, uh, the, you know, for most people, I think the ego is still there, but it doesn't have to uh, 
have the power or the leverage that it uh, wa- normally has in the ordinary state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, um, another way in which this uh, distinction of awareness and awarenessing arises for me is the um, is the difficulty or even impossibility of how um, how to judge our own process so the the word awareness and the way that we were discussing it in the uh, in much of the talk linked and located that word awareness with a um, a, a noun, a state, something that one could imagine grasping and holding on to and making permanent. Whereas awarenessing uh, is this recognition of the ongoing processing of our awareness and consciousness such that um, we don't have to grab onto moments along the way. We can simply acknowledge that there's a process happening. We can characterize the process. We can, you know, um, discuss it coherently. But um, but that doesn't mean that it's a thing that we um, either grasp after or having experienced it, as we were discussing a moment ago, after having experienced it, losing it and being unable to replicate it. So do you, would you say it's like watching a, a stream? Well, it, more like it's like uh, being a leaf on the stream, I suppose. Um, not separate from the stream. So, um, but one of the things that... that um, well, I'll just say related to that, that I appreciated about Warner's book is something that had long occurred to me. I have a history of having read, in English translation, um, a, a great deal of the um, Buddhist, liter- uh, Buddhist literature. Not, uh, in particular, the um, so-called Theravada texts, the early texts of Buddhism, as well as a lot of the Mahayana, but not as much of the Mahayana because it's so incredibly extensive. In any event, um, there's a there's a passage I want to quote from Warner here, where he's talking about the no instead of the noble eightfold path, it's the noble eightfold path. It's a different chapter than the one I was reading from before, and he's talking about the um, the path of right concentration. And Warner writes, in early Buddhist texts, there are lots of details about what right concentration means. They use the word jhana to refer to special states of concentration, a Sanskrit term. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to start with the first jhana, which is, quote, rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, unquote. Then you go to jhana number two, which is, quote, rapture and pleasure born of composure, Unification of awareness free from directed thought and evaluation. Internal assurance, unquote. 
After you get that, you go on to jhana three, which is, quote, equanimous and mindful, unquote, and, quote, the abandoning of pleasure and pain, unquote. Finally, jhana four is, quote, equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain, unquote, and, quote, concentration that leads to a pleasant abiding in the here and now, unquote. Warner goes on to say, Personally, I don't get all that. I don't see how anyone can judge what jhana they themselves are in, and I don't see how someone else could judge it from the outside either. It seems a little silly to me even to worry about it. Then folks state therein to be exactly as it is without trying to determine if it's jhana number three or whatever. They don't even try to progress from one state of mind to another. This is because the idea of progress means evaluating things in terms of linear time. But the only real time is here and now. So comparing your state right now to your memory of a state from the past or to your imagination of a state you anticipate getting to in the future just takes you away from the here and now. And I think this... So, so uh, Rob, uh, uh, letting go of uh, Brad's distinction here, I really like what he has to say because that's long been my sense of it. I could never understand how, either how it could be realistically accomplished to distinguish between these different jhanas, uh, these different meditative concentrative states, and um, how could you know, if you, even if your mind came up with an evaluation, an identification, oh yes, I was just in jhana X, Y, or Z, um, how you could trust that. Certainly there's no external data you could get. And the internal data is is necessarily subjective. So what's the point even in worrying about it? And that's, um, once again, uh, you know, relating it to awareness and awarenessing. Awareness can be construed as in fact, trying to identify what state you're in or what state you were in a moment before, etc. Whereas awarenessing just acknowledges the um, um, the impermanence of what's happening and the continuity of our experience. Of the different things that are happening. Okay, I, I guess I halfway agree with you and halfway don't. Okay, tell me what. Tell well, me how you do and how you don't. I think it's. Uh, I agree that the distinctions are not necessarily all that important. Uh, I do believe that you can mm. and it's possible to uh, have reliable distinctions of a state that one is in. And that mm, well, give me an example. Well, I mean, a simple example is if I if I have a feeling, you know, I, I can uh, understand that I've, I've had this feeling, or if I have a sense or a sense of presence or a sense of confidence, I, I can have competence or com- com- confidence. Confidence. I, I'm I'm using that word specifically because it was uh, uh, mentioned as uh, an attribute of one of the jhanas, mm-hmm. and 
so I think it's possible to distinguish that sort of thing in one state and with greater and greater meditative practice I think one can have a more reliable sense of distinction that's not clouded by a um, uh, an ad- identified subjective mind. I'm not sure I agree with you because um, well, the way I would put it is that m- maybe in my experience at least maybe it's possible to to um, have some confidence about what one is not experiencing but to have confidence about a description of one's experience that's a whole different thing well that's a, that's a very okay. different uh, okay. kettle of fish I, okay like I said uh, we don't we don't really agree on this point uh, and yet I don't think it's that big a deal one way or the other in, in the sense that um, you can say you can define f- uh, for uh, jhanas and and uh, maybe with training have some sense of uh, how you know that whether you're in one or or in a different one and yet uh, to me any sort of definitional system is so completely relative that you, you could just chop it up a completely different way and, uh, well, that's partly it, my point. Yeah, it's a, it's a, so it's kind of like a coordinate system. So I don't, I believe you can have a coordinate system and you can locate yourself within the coordinate system, but uh, ultimately all coordinate systems are relative, and so there's something I think that's uh, more interesting outside of the coordinate systems, which is really what I think you're saying, which is that if you can hold the kind of listening that we were talking about in the talk and hold the space in which experience comes and goes and be present to it all and partake in it, I think that that is a more reliable relationship to living and being and awarenessing than trying to come up with a model of uh, uh, one's states. Now it sounds you're agreeing with me fully. well, the only point where we dis- uh, distinguish is that you, I, I think it's possible to uh, accurately identify the state you're in. It's just that uh, I don't think really? it's that important. Okay. Well, give me an example here. Well, I mean, it's like I'm sitting in a chair. I mean, and I don't think that the, the jhanas are any more uh, complicated than that. You know, okay, so... Oh, come on. So you, uh, do, do you want me to reread some of those descriptions? No, we only have a, uh, about a minute left. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> well, you're not convincing me with that example, let's put it that All way. Right. Well, I, 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 I just, I, I think it's possible, uh, uh, I, I could be proved wrong on that, but um, uh, I just don't, like, like you said, it, it, any of these internal models or any of these <laughs> descriptions of experience are all kind of like signposts, but they're signposts in a, uh, you know, an empty space, and the... Signposts in an empty space, there's an interesting image. There you go. And I I'm think not sure it's a meaningful image, but it's an interesting image. <laughs> All right, well, at any rate, it's a... Uh, it's a I'm not saying that, that, it, that it's impossible to have interesting things to say. Right, but... But, 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 but let's just recognize that just having interesting things to say in and of itself um, does not constitute a spiritual yeah, accomplishment. Well, well the, other, the other thing I think is problematic is that uh, often I think one can be in a place in consciousness uh, 
and and from that place or that location one can spin out a beautiful description of where you're at for someone who isn't in that place reading that description is actually more of an obstacle than it is an asset because then uh, suddenly they you know they're kind of, the words are leading them and they're not and they're not leading the words and I think in that sense uh, uh, a more direct approach like you're advocating I think is more appropriate and I'll give you the last word here since we it's have to too, wrap up it's too late uh, I was just going to say that I'm so in awe of your skill at at nabbing the last word <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to give me the last 15 seconds sorry <laughs> <laughs> all right well this is it's, it's been a delight and I enjoyed having the talk doing the talk with you last night I thought it was a, a really nice crowd it, w it was good I all enjoyed right. it until next time yes you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, December 12, 2019, entitled Pimples on the Butt of the Absolute, Awareness and Awarenessing. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we will be posting an encore show from our considerable archives. So tune in for that show on Saturday, December 21st from 4 to 6 p.m. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. Enjoy. Enjoy.